The more the world changes, the more we find comfort in things that never change. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Hello, everybody. Welcome. I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappin, and you're listening to the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. Thank you very much indeed for investing your valuable time in this show as I, your rabbi, solemnly commit myself to revealing how the world really works. And this is the uh, final show that I will be taping in Jerusalem, Israel for right now. Uh, My current trip is almost at an end. And um, there are a couple of things I want to tell you about. I obviously want to answer the question which so many of you have been asking me, which is how likely is it in the face of the current American administration's not only utter inactivity regarding Iran, but uh, their positive hustling Iran along on its path to to Middle East hegemony and uh, to uh, terror control, not only of the Middle East, but uh, of many other countries through their agents like uh, Hezbollah and Hamas. And so... While the United States uh, not only does nothing to hinder Iran's acquisition of nuclear bombs, uh, but uh, the United States is actually doing everything possible uh, to help them along that path. What is Israel going to do? Is Israel likely to do something to take out the Iranian nuclear program? There is, after all, a precedent. Uh, Israel did attack a Syrian nuclear installation. And uh, prior to that, there was also a a famous uh, attack on uh, on a nuclear installation that secretly uh, America appreciated and expressed gratitude to Israel for, uh, on the surface, of course, uh, loud condemnation. Doesn't that kind of two-facedness in international diplomacy drive you crazy? Don't you think America should be above that sort of thing? Don't you think we should be who we are and let the people who like us like us and the people who don't? Tough cookies. Wouldn't it be nice if some form of integrity were to return? It would be great. And I'm going to talk a little bit about that later in the show because... What we're going to do this time, a little bit of a different show, what we're going to do is um, actually discuss um, four separate things. And so for about uh, the first 20 minutes, uh, 20, 25 minutes of the show, I'm going to be telling you about Israel. And then when uh, we move on to the next 20 or 25 minutes of the show, the next two segments... Uh, that is going to be about the abolition of objectivity in art and in education. What does it mean that something that uh, a five-year-old could splash onto a piece of paper uh, sells for vast sums and is hailed and anointed as incredibly important art 
when you know that it's complete and utter rubbish, what does it say when somebody immerses a dead shark in formaldehyde and it sells for $10 million as art? What does it say when somebody immerses a crucifix, a cross, in his own urine and sells that as an incredibly significant piece of art, if you'll pardon me, called Piss Christ. And, um, and this is the world we live in. Now, we could just laugh at it and dismiss it, but does it have dangerous implications for us in a very practical sense? I'm going to explain that in the second part of uh, the show, and that'll run from about uh, uh, 20 minutes to about 40 minutes. That'll be the next two segments. And then uh, after that, we're going to be taking a look at a very disturbing trend in society, which is how credentials and contacts have replaced character and culture. In other words, no longer do we look into a person to try and evaluate how big and good a person that is. No, we simply see how well connected that person is, and we simply see what university degrees that person has been assigned or allocated. And uh, that'll be the third section made up of uh, segments uh, four, uh, f uh, five and six. And then finally, the last two segments, seven and eight, the last uh, 20 or 25 minutes uh, of the show, uh, will be looking into the question of are we, in fact, animals or something different? Are we just sophisticated animals or are we something different? Now, uh, this is a, a topic and a theme that you've heard from me before, but uh, we're going to look at it from the point of view of the tools that humans make and, more seriously, uh, what are some of the political implications of how we answer that question? So all of that then, uh, four separate topics, starting off with Israel, going on to modern art and the abolition of all forms of objective standards, not only in art but in education. And what about elsewhere? Maybe the abolition of objective standards harms us in a number of other areas. Well, you'll hear that in the second part of the show, uh, the, the uh, period from about 20 to 40 minutes. Uh, third section will be um, uh, how credentials and contacts replace character and culture, and the, uh, that'll be from uh, about, uh, say, um, uh, 40 to 60, something like that. And then uh, finally, are we animals or are we touched by the finger of God, 60 to 80? Show a little bit shorter uh, today, and uh, that's just part of an ongoing experiment for me to find the ideal length that works best for all of you, because I do this show specifically for you. Let's start off with the question of uh, Israel's response to Iran being given the green light by the United States. And of course, when the United States gives Iran the green light, uh, not only is it a green light, but it's also a green light to nations all around the world and companies all around the United States to happily proceed to sell Iran all the tools, and I'll talk about tools later on, but all the tools that they need to 
go ahead with their dastardly programs. Uh, how does Israel react to all of this? Well, uh, for a start, let's just be clear that Iran has enormously benefited already from the so-called nuclear agreement uh, because Iran benefits from any uh, deterioration of the relationship between Israel and Iran. Uh, Iran views both Israel and America as enemies, right? Because both of them are standing in the way of what Iran and the mullahs want, which is um, hegemony. They want control over the Middle East. And to whatever extent they can drive a wedge between the United States and Israel makes it easier for them to push ahead. Now, I should tell you, Gulf states and Saudi Arabia are extremely unnerved by the prospect of Iran obtaining nuclear weapons. And uh, I, I will also tell you that um, off, the, off the record, in other words, I'm not telling you any, anything I say to you, you're welcome to repeat. I never say anything off the record. But uh, I have been told off the record that there are fascinating high-level conversations between some of the Gulf states and uh, Israel even between the Saudis and Israel. So who knows what strange things the good Lord is planning for the uh, geopolitical makeup of the Middle East. I mean, is Iran what it takes to bring uh, Israel and Saudi Arabia and some of the Gulf states uh, to a secret negotiating or conversation table at least? Maybe. But uh, more importantly, the problem is that uh, uh, Iran is now in a better position to destabilize the Middle East and, uh, and to, in so doing, achieve more centralized control for themselves, basically to become the boss of the Middle East. Now, what is America going to do? Well, uh, it does seem as if Israel is going to be able to uh, obtain an, some form of a quid pro quo, mainly in the form of F-35 strike fighters. Uh, if, uh, if Israel's air defenses can be bolstered by a, uh, a squadron or two of F-35s, um, that would give Israel the capacity uh, to, I to, to attack Iran if and when, let's just say when, Iran breaches the agreement. By the way, this agreement is so wide you could drive an aircraft carrier through it. I don't think it's going to be possible to establish when they breach it because almost nothing that they do is actually a breach. Quick pause, and when we come back, uh, I'll tell you the one thing that Israel definitely needs from the United States. Its abbreviation is MOP. No, they do not need a cleaning mop, but what does Israel need? Hold on, tell you in just a moment. Meanwhile, quick break while you have a chance to visit my website, youneedarabbi.com, Y-O-U, you need a rabbi, double B. And at youneedarabbi.com, I want you to sign up for Thought Tools. That's my free weekly email message, uh, which is chiefly the way you and I stay in touch. And it also gives you an opportunity uh, to email me. You just hit the Contact Us tab on my website at youneedarabbi.com. You know all the rest. Be back with you in just a moment. The Blaze On Demand. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin. Don't miss Pat and Stu. All mass shootings happen in uh, zones that take legal guns out. 
and all mass shootings end when police show up and bring legal guns back in. That's the only reason they stop. It's because guns do stop these things. Force does work. Pat and Stu, weekdays at 5 p.m. Eastern on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome back to Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand, only on the Blaze Radio Network. Your rabbi, that's me, Rabbi Daniel Lappin. And uh, what does Israel need, even more importantly than F-35s, which I think they do need and uh, will use very effectively, I can assure you, uh, I think there's a fair shot that uh, Israel will get bunker boss buster bombs from the United States. Uh, and you know what those are, right? They're, they're designed to uh, penetrate uh, down into the earth before they explode. That's why they're called bunker buster bombs. They can bust bunkers. However, uh, the fact that the Israelis are, are very, very well aware of is that uh, the United States bunker buster bombs, which are... Um, you know, they've been around for a few years already. These are totally incapable of penetrating Iran's protected nuclear sites. For instance, the one at Fordow. And uh, that one is so deep. I mean, there's essentially a mountain on top of it that bunker buster bombs will not do that. However, uh, the United States, yes, we do have a mop. A mop will take out all the Iranian nuclear installations. What is the MOP? Um, it's an acronym that stands for Massive Ordnance Penetrating Bomb. M-O-P, Massive Ordnance Penetrating Bomb. And uh, it's, it's not a nuclear device. It's a, it's a conventional explosive, but it's, as you can tell from its name, it is massive. It is colossal. And uh, Israel, if they had these, could actually inflict uh, total destruction on the Ar Iranian nuclear program. The problem is that the MOP, the Massive Ordnance Penetrator Bomb, is so colossal and it's so huge that it can only be carried by, uh, by basically the heaviest bombers that we have in America, the B-52 or perhaps the B-1. Uh, those are literally the only airplanes that can carry it, the only bombers. Israel does not own not even a single B-52, not even a single B-1. And, uh, and, um, and I just don't know. I can't see Israel getting those bombers. I don't see it happening. I, I don't see the votes in Congress right now. But um, what happens if America does give Israel the MOP, the Massive Ordnance Penetrator, uh, even on the basis of let's store it over here. Instead of storing it at an Air Force base in Arkansas, why don't we store it in the Middle East, in Israel, so as at least it's closer to where it's obviously ultimately going to be needed. Uh, another possibility is, you know, the one thing that Israel is brilliant at is improvisation, the ability to just make do with what they've got. Uh, it's, it's an extraordinary ability and uh, probably more responsible than anything else for Israel's ability to have withstood attack after attack after attack on its borders, war after war after war. And uh, the truth is that um, uh, the Israel does have transport planes, uh, planes like the C-130, including variations of it where Israel has made modifications and improved the aircraft. Uh, 
Uh, now, the C-130 is not a bomber. It's a transport plane, but it could carry the mop. It is capable of carrying weights as big as that massive ordnance penetrator. And could Israel modify it so that uh, a couple of their C-130s are basically turned into one-purpose bombers for the mop? Absolutely, they could do that. No question. Obviously, a C-130 is, is very vulnerable to attack by... Uh, uh, by Iranian def air defenses, uh, but Iranian air defenses at the moment, um, based on Israeli intelligence, is not that strong. Israeli, uh, Iranian air defense, as long as Russia does not supply them with the latest generation S-300, their um, surface-to-air missile, if, if Russia supplies Iran with the S-300, all bets are off. Uh, that is... Uh, and you know what? I can't see that happening. I just don't think I'm wrong on this one. Um, you know that I do not consider Vladimir Putin to be an idiot. Um, there are leaders of other countries in the world today that are idiots, no, without doubt. He's not one of them. Um, Cameron in England is not one of them. Harper in Canada is not one of them. Uh, there are other certain unnamed countries that are being head by, headed by idiots, morons, and imbeciles, but uh, not uh, Russia. I don't think that Russia wants Iran to have um, essentially impermeable borders. I don't know that they want that. Now, look, uh, there's no question about it that any attack on, uh, on uh, uh, Iran is, is filled with peril because Hezbollah – uh, has at least 100,000 rockets and missiles in storage, ready to go, uh, which are now capable of hitting almost everywhere in the land of Israel. And uh, if Israel hits Iran, it's certainly possible that the mullahs in Tehran could order Hezbollah to, to launch their rockets. Quite possible. Uh, but who knows? Who knows? The bottom, the bottom line is that, um, that you've got to remember that it's only 70 years since Jews lost millions to a systematic, um, uh, murderous, um, genocidal program conducted by the Nazis. And, uh, and whereas uh, it seems as if the administration in the United States of America at the present time seems willing to allow America to slide into almost any degree of peril, uh, I can assure you that that is not the case in Israel. In Israel, people are acutely aware of how recently um, the sort of major portion, I mean more than half of the world's Jews, were wiped out. And no American government is going to be willing to run the risk of uh, allowing the mad homicidal threats of the Iranian leadership such as, you know, Israel's removal from the map is non-negotiable. Within 25 years, Israel will cease to exist, etc., etc., etc. And no Israeli government allows that to happen, particularly um, being aware, of course, my friends, that um, I am recording this one week, only one week um, after the murder of Atam and Nama Henkin. The, this was a young couple. Uh, with four little kids. So th they're in their early 30s, and um, they're driving from their town of Nerea to Jerusalem. And uh, it's, by the way, right near a town called Itamar. You might remember um, some of the most horrible,
horrible and gruesome pictures ever on the internet were when two uh, Arabs broke into a home one Friday night over the Sabbath in the town of Itamar and literally slit the throats of the whole family, died. Um, and again, I think one child survived that. Uh, right near there, um, the uh, three Arabs, a driver and two gunmen, ambushed Atam and Nama, shot them up, killed Nama almost instantly. Atam severely wounded, gets out of his car to open the back door where four kids, okay, they got four little boys, nine years old, seven years old, four years old, and four months old uh, in the car, trying to get them out of the car into the ditch on the side of the road, failed. He was gunned down, and uh, the two of them were wiped out. Uh, one of the uh, Arabs shot by accident one of his uh, murderous colleagues, not fatally, and so they took off, and they didn't kill the kids. Now, um, uh, look, we're talking about Israel. Um, and for the last week, since the 1st of October 2015, which was, this is the holiday period. This is like Christmas, New Year in the United States. Everybody's off. People are filling the streets. It's a joyous time. Families are together. In this period... Um, the, uh, the, 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 the rate of murderous attacks suddenly picked up, and it's now been um, just over a week since Atam and Nama were killed, murdered, and their kids turned into orphans. And now, as of yesterday, just listen, yesterday, yesterday morning in Jerusalem, a 25-year-old Bible college student uh, plunges a long knife through the front of his neck, uh, critically injured, we don't know if he'll survive. I'm talking one day's killings, all right? And just think about what would happen if this was going on in the United States, okay? In the United States, it's a big deal, big deal for the administration when a criminal thug attacks a policeman, tries to take his gun, and the policeman shoots him, as happened in Ferguson, Missouri. This is a big calamity. But we're talking now about, I'm telling you about the death toll just yesterday. So there was a seminary student in the middle of Tel Aviv, a female soldier in critical condition, stabbed in the neck and head. Uh, four others were stabbed during the, the rampage uh, before an Israeli Air Force officer uh, jumped out of a passing car and shot the terrorist. Uh, in Jerusalem, a uh, uh, terrorist... 3 o'clock yesterday afternoon, tries to uh, stab a group of people. Uh, at quarter to four, an Israeli motorist severely injured by Arab rock throwers. And by the way, rock throwing is just as, uh, as, as fatal as uh, shooting bullets. So please don't think this is just kids throwing stones. Um, at quarter to four, near Hebron, um, an Israeli attacked by two Arabs stabbed and in desperate condition. Uh, middle of Jerusalem, 4.30 yesterday. After, this is day after day after. I'm just giving you the toll of yesterday. Arab driver rams his car into pedestrians on a sidewalk in Jerusalem. Uh, in Itamar, where the uh, Henkins were murdered exactly a week ago, a bus pelted with rocks. Um, in Haifa, 5.55 yesterday afternoon, um, a vehicle... Uh, pounded with rocks by Arabs. Um, central bus station, 7 p.m. last night, an Arab armed with a great big knife uh, starts a rampage at the central bus station. Police take him out. 
in the north of Israel, 715. Uh, an IDF soldier is uh, seriously wounded, again, attacked with a screwdriver from the rear, and uh, there were the terrorists took his weapon and started turning it on other people around there. Uh, a passerby, an armed passerby, took him out. Uh, eight o'clock last night, uh, nine border patrol policemen wounded by hundreds of Arabs hurling stones and pipe bombs on French Hill uh, in, um, in Jerusalem. Uh, 10 o'clock last night on uh, one of the major highways, um, a passenger grievously wounded because of rocks thrown through the windshield of the car that he was driving on. This goes on day after day after day. And um, uh, it's yesterday afternoon, um, my wife Susan and myself went to visit the Hankins, whose son and daughter-in-law were, were murdered. In Jewish tradition, and I've written upon the, uh, on this in Thought Tools, and, um, and you, can, you can certainly read that on my website, uh, there is a, a tradition and a custom of, of how we mourn, and uh, it, it's a week-long process of, of being at home. Uh, there are prayers and services, but the primary process is uh, visitors. And um, I mean, with these incidents, and there are about 12 houses of mourning in Israel right now from the last week, and it's crowded. Right? While uh, Susan and I were visiting this couple, uh, whose daughter-in-law and son were murdered just a week ago, in the next room uh, are the four orphans, four little kids, nine years old, seven years old, four years old, four months old. Um, by the way, this is Israel. Uh, a call went around. Our daughter became aware of this, and some of her friends responded. Uh, they're looking for nursing mothers to take care. This is a four-month-old kid who needs breast milk. That's all he, he's on. His mom was murdered and shot by Arabs a week ago. And, uh, yeah, strangers have come forward, and uh, they, they have a rotation. Uh, every couple of hours, another woman arrives to nurse the infant. And, uh, and there it is, three kids who will grow up never knowing their parents. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's a tough thing, I've got to tell you. It's a very, very tough thing. And that's why it is that uh, when I tell you that Israel is not likely to sit around and allow Iran to um, achieve its goal, probably not likely to happen. So what can be done about all of this? Well, I'll tell you in just a moment. Coming right back, uh, there is something can be done. It's the big R word. Uh, I'll give that to you coming right up. The Blaze On Demand. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin. Fox Sexton. Think about where you can actually draw these lines. Now, I know this from people who jump in and they say, hold on a second, well, what about people who are involuntary committed? Right, that's already a law. What about people who are you know, convicted of domestic abuse? And there are laws about these things already. And perhaps those are the sort of very basic, if you want to call them common sense gun control laws, those seem to already be in place. Buck Sexton, weekdays, noon to 2 p.m. Eastern, on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome back to Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand. Only on the Blaze Radio Network. Uh, you're in segment number three. And uh, I left you just a moment ago uh, telling you how uh, Susan and I uh, paid what's called a shiva call. Shiva is when a family in mourning spends seven days at home um, just receiving visitors who want to come and try and comfort them. And uh, 
out of the 12 houses of mourning in Israel, um, all who have suffered um, uh, losses as Arab terrorists have murdered civilians in the streets of Israel over the last week or so. Um, why did we choose this one to visit? Well, uh, we wanted to visit somebody because we just wanted to uh, play our role in, in trying to, to comfort those who are on the front lines of terror and, um, and in, in many ways our, our brothers and our sisters. And uh, we chose the Henkins because many years ago, uh, Mrs. Henkin, who is a uh, Bible scholar of considerable renown in her own right, as her husband is also, uh, but she actually visited uh, my congregation. Um, while I was still a congregational rabbi, my synagogue was in Los Angeles, California, right on the ocean in a place called Venice. And... Uh, uh, the, this particular uh, woman, who was a uh, you know a young Rebetzin, uh, a young female Bible scholar uh, back then, this has got to be thirty years ago. Uh, she came to uh, we welcomed her to come and teach in our congregation, and uh, she did. And now, of course, she's a much older woman with with grown children and grandchildren. But um, it was in fact her son and her daughter-in-law that were killed. Her four grandsons, orphaned and uh, heartbreaking, they're in the next room. While we're there, two young girls, lovely young girls, maybe 14, 15, 16 years old, showed up and knelt at the feet of Mrs. Henkin, who just had her son and, and uh, daughter-in-law murdered. These two young girls, with tears pouring down their faces, hugged the older woman, and they explained how seven years ago, their parents were wiped out, brutally massacred in a terrorist attack, and they were trying to tell this older woman that their, her grandchildren will be okay, that they'll grow up. This is how we spent yesterday afternoon, and we must have been among, I, I don't know, 70 people in this tiny apartment, and People were pouring in when we arrived, and people were pouring out. It's, it's, this is how it is in Israel. Everybody feels the pain, and everybody experiences it on, on the most visceral level. And so every day, and I, I haven't checked. Uh, it's, it's still early the next day. I haven't checked figures yet. I'm scared to open the, uh, the, the website, but uh, I'm sure that more people have been attacked. There's, it's, it's going on. How do you stop it? Well, there is a way. I'm not saying it's practical. I'm not saying they should do it because nobody is paying me to advise the Israeli government. And, um, and, uh, and so I, I can't uh, speak in terms of, you know, yes, they've got to go ahead and do this. But I will tell you that... Um, that because of a general collapse of morality, this option is not being given due consideration. It's a very painful option. It's an option that is going to result in the death of many innocent people. But hold on. The Henkin children were also innocent people. And all the other, all the other Israelis that have been killed in the last week, and all the thousands of Israelis that have been killed in the last few years, and all the people, the children that have been orphaned, they're pretty innocent too. And so 
That is not an argument. Innocent people will be killed. Innocent people are being killed if we do nothing. And, um, and I, I ask you to think back. Again, the collapse of morality has made it almost impossible for people to fully understand what was going on in the closing days of World War II in the Pacific. Um, suffice it to say that from a moral point of view, it was entirely appropriate for America to drop the atom bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Did lots of innocent people die? Sure. But um, America's at war, and one of the things you have to understand is that governments are not God. I know many governments that think they are, but governments are not God. God may well judge all blood as being equal. I don't know. He hasn't, he hasn't shared that with me. But what I do know is that governments have no moral right to treat all blood as equal. In other words, the American government has to treat American blood as infinitely expensive and valuable, much, much more than the blood of others. And so, uh, as I've, I've often said, uh, I would have only three words. If somebody told me that I could save the lives of three Americans or two Americans or one American by torturing a terrorist, I would have only three words to say. Pass the pliers. I wouldn't hesitate for a moment. Because, as an American, American blood is more valuable to me than that of anybody else. And as a Jew, Jewish blood is also more valuable to me. And as a Lapin, Lapin blood is more valuable. In other words, in morality, there is a hierarchy. And as soon as you say, Everybody's the same, which is essentially the message of socialism carried into the moral sphere. As soon as you say all things are equally valuable, then nothing is valuable. You've demoted everything. This is one of the reasons that there is a hierarchy of charity as well. You have to give charity in accordance with a certain hierarchy, certain causes, certain needs, certain people are more worthy recipients of your largesse than others. Not everybody's the same. You don't owe the same to a sad, tragic, starving person in the Sudan as you do to a sad, tragic, starving person in your church or in your synagogue or in your family. Of course not. You've got to understand that. And so if the American government was able to save the lives of and it was estimated, and those of you with any kind of military background and experience, or maybe like me, you are a scholar, uh, I wouldn't call myself a scholar, but certainly a student and a reader of military history, uh, when they estimated that there could be several hundred thousand casualties in a uh, seaborne invasion of the Japanese islands to bring World War II to an end, and you tell me, you know, I can save 100,000 American lives. If you told me you could save 1,000 American lives and the cost is the destruction of several hundred thousand lives of the enemy by dropping the atom bomb on two cities, there's no hesitation. That's what you're supposed to do. In exactly the same way that I've, I've had callers to uh, the radio show sometimes say to me when I say to them, look, um, Here's the situation. Your kids are being threatened by a home invader. 
he is undoubtedly going to kill them unless you kill him. Now, healthy, normal people with a balanced sense, with a balanced sense of morality, uh, say, I'll pull the trigger with a smile on my lips. But people who are already damaged in terms of morality uh, are agonizing over this. And I've even had women say to me, I don't think I could take the life of another human being. I mean, it's your children. It's, it's the other human being or your children. You're the mother. What mother would hesitate? Mothers with a distorted sense of morality who believe all human beings are equivalent. And they may be to God. I don't know. But I do know that they shouldn't be to you. And so, uh, you know, th there is something grotesque in the moral failure on the part of, of a mother or a father who doesn't feel capable of taking a life if that was the only way to save their children. Similarly, there'd be something very bizarre. And by the way, the United States has plenty of people today who indict their own country for dropping the atom bomb upon Japan. Uh, again, it's, it's ignorance and it's, it's failure to understand what uh, was really going on. So uh, what is the solution? Now that I've, I've laid a little bit of the, the foundation that you understand, that not all lives are equivalent to you, to me, or our government. And by the way, I, you know, I understand that, that other governments look at it in exactly the same way. I don't doubt for a moment that Iranians, uh, although I don't know that they care that much about their own people, because I think there is a fatalism in Islam, uh, but basically, yeah, they would have no trouble killing a whole lot of other people, just like they did the Iraqis, by the way. Do you remember the multi-year Iran-Iraq war? Couldn't have been a nicer thing, right? The two, <laughs> the two best nations on the world taking each other out. How much better does it get? Uh, all right, now, um, really, if I was a nice, responsible rabbi, I'd, I'd go back and erase the last sentence, wouldn't I? But uh, since this podcast, this show is for you, uh, you probably would not want me to edit this in any way at all, and uh, I don't. And so uh, what is it that is the big R word? What is the big protector? What is the, the big solution that Israel could adopt? Okay, I, I said it's tough to do. Uh, I said that uh, in today's moral collapse, it would be challenging. But there is a way to stop these attacks on Israeli civilians. Uh, what it is? I'm going to tell you as soon as we come back. No, I mean it, really. The minute we come back, I'm going to tell you. Won't, won't postpone it any further. Uh, it's coming right up. The, the frightening, terrifying R word. That is going to be the solution. I'm your rabbi, Rabbi Daniel Lappin, back with you in a moment. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Don't miss the morning blaze with Doc and Skip. The latest failure of the F-35 is lighter pilots, those who weigh less, could, when they eject, have their neck snap. Generally speaking, when you eject from a plane, you don't want the neck to snap. Right, you're ejecting to save the life of the pilot. Yeah, because, I mean, if the neck was just mm. going to snap, they could just stay in the plane that's going down. The morning blaze with Doc and Skip. Weekday mornings, 6 to 9 Eastern, on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome back to the Blaze Radio Network On Demand with Rabbi Daniel Lappin. Okay, 
your rabbi, that's me, Rabbi Daniel Lappin, dedicated, as you know, to revealing how the world really works. And uh, my friends, the, r the way the world really works is with power, not paper. Um, it works because of armies that have the capacity to kill and destroy, not because John Kerry or some like-minded simpleton sits down at a table with people. Uh, I ask you to remember the most notorious example of a politician who had no clue at all about how the world really works, and that was Neville Chamberlain in 1938, who came back from a conversation with uh, Adolf Hitler in Munich. And uh, <laughs> Adolf Hitler knew how the world really works. Neville Chamberlain, the British Prime Minister at the time, did not. And that's why, within a few short months, uh, the world was at war, and Neville Chamberlain was a sad, tragic footnote to history, whereas the British Prime Minister, who uh, led uh, Britain and America to, uh, with, with American President to victory eventually, uh, was Winston Churchill, who had a very clear understanding of how the world really works. And so, uh, what would I do if I was in charge? Here's what I would do. <coughs> now, again... I'm not blaming Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu for not doing this. Uh, I'm sure there are many factors I don't know. There are probably things I don't understand. Um, and among the things I do know and understand, I know that America would probably not stand by for this. And right now, I've got to think that there are many areas in which Israel does still depend upon the American-Israeli alliance, upon this uh, fateful brotherhood between Jerusalem and Washington, D.C. But here is what I would do if I was in charge, nonetheless. <coughs> so um, there was an attack uh, on Thursday night, October the 1st, in which uh, Nama and Atam Henkin uh, were brutally murdered in their car on a lonely street and their four children with, who witnessed their parents' murders were orphaned. I would now, now that um, the Israeli Defense Force knows who the three culprits are and they're searching for them, if this was me, same night, same night, I now take a special force, black ops, secret, no media, no news, absolutely quiet, because the times are critical, and critical responses are needed in critical times, I would um, call out my uh, military team, special forces, and go to the first, the nearest Arab village to the attack. Just go to the nearest Arab village to the attack. Now, you are going to be horrified and when you hear what I'm going to say next. It's going to sound chilling, it's going to sound blood-curdling, and... Um, all I can say is that it is not an order I would give uh, without prayer, without fear and trembling, uh, without tremendous worry that I will one day have to give judgment to my creator for this call if, if it is in fact wrong. But I don't think it is, and it's what I would do. I would send in my team, and uh, I would have them kill every man, woman, and child in that village, quickly and instantly. I would then bulldoze every building 
every structure in that village. And before sunrise, a new Israeli settlement would be planted there. It would be trailers, it would be tents, and a watchtower with a few machine guns. But that's all you would see by sunrise. The Henkins are killed on the crossroads near Itamar, nearest Arab village, wiped out man, woman, and child, buildings raised, and an Israeli settlement planted. It's called reprisals. And um, I ask you, my friends, how many more terrorist attacks do you think there will be? Because you've got to understand, it's not all Arabs. There are many Arabs who love living in Israel, the majority of them. They don't want to leave. They enjoy the freedom. They enjoy the economy. And there's got to be a whole lot of them who hate the idea of these terrorists, hot-headed younger people, imperiling their lives and threatening their existences. But at the moment, they're in no way motivated to help police their own ranks. When I'm in charge, they will be amply motivated to police their own ranks because they will make sure every village will patrol the neighborhood to make sure no attacks take place near them because this word would get around. Now, of course, um, I would also make sure that I have as an effective uh, disinformation campaign as the Arabs do, as Russia has, as, as the Nazis had in World War II, even as Churchill used. Do you think Churchill told the world everything that was going on? Of course not. There are stories I know of in World War II where Churchill's decisions cost the lives of many people, but he had to make those decisions. And so here again, there would be shrieks of outrage, and uh, I would do everything possible to uh, create confusion so that the world has no idea what I did last night. Now, uh, is there likely to be another terrorist outbreak? Sure. Four or five days' time, just as it's been going on now, there'll be another few Israelis murdered by rock-wielding Arabs or a screwdriver in the back of the skull, uh, which is what they've been doing on the streets of Jerusalem. And um, I move in, same night, in the middle of the night, nearest village, men, women, and children uh, uh, executed, every one of them. And uh, town, de village demolished, new Israeli settlement planted right there. Do you think there's likely to be another terrorist attack? Maybe. If so, it'll be the last, but probably not even a second. My friends, if there's one thing you've got to say about uh, the Arabs, they are realists. They do understand how the world works, and they understand the power of violence, the effectiveness of action over words. They understand all that. And it's only right now because killing Israelis, killing Jews, can be conducted with utter impunity. It's not something that bothers the United States, not something that bothers United Nations, um, and so they know they can do this. And so uh, a go-nowhere, hopeless, do-nothing Arab youngster on the streets of East Jerusalem can turn himself into a hero. And his family can get a payout of money. All of that. But when I am in charge, the terrible R word will be the order of the day. It's uh, it's It's 
frightening, it's terrifying, but uh, it is exactly what God told Saul to do in the book of Samuel. Wipe out the Amalekites, man, women, and child. Why? Because they will rise again and they will take you out. This is something Rudyard Kipling brought to life in a short story called Ricky Tiki Tavi. It's a wonderful children's story about a mongoose in India. And mongoose, are they mongoose? Mongooses? I'm not sure. But it's a curious rodent-like creature that is lightning quick. And it's the only thing cobras are frightened of. Mongoose can kill cobras. And um, one of the things that happens in Rudyard Kipling's uh, tale is that as soon as the mongoose has killed the cobra, you know what he does next? He goes to the cobra's nest and he destroys all the eggs he finds there. Because he knows that if he doesn't, those eggs will hatch and grow more cobras that may well kill him or his children. That's how the world works. It's painful, it's miserable, but uh, yes, that is probably the only thing Israel could do in order to stop these murderous and horrifying attacks on its civilians. Are we likely to see such a thing happen? Well, I'd like to think that if it did happen, we wouldn't know about it. I'd like to think that uh, they would be as meticulous about silence and uh, black operations as I would be if I was in charge, but um, I'm not holding my breath. Meanwhile, uh, around me and outside, people go about their daily lives, but whenever they walk past a group of Arabs in the street, they walk a little quicker, they look back over their shoulders because too many of their brothers and sisters have felt a knife sever their necks or a screwdriver into the back of their skulls. I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappin. Quick break, and uh, we're moving on to the abolition of objectivity. Next topic in today's show. Stay tuned, and uh, back with you in just a moment. Don't go away. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Jay Severin. She deserves this. Hillary's going to lose, and Martha ain't never going to be heard from again. I hate that woman. You know, in the existence of a delegate derives from whom they represent, good or bad. Look, even if you are associated with a candidate that goes on to lose, you still have a certain status. At least you were a delegate, right? Jay Severin. Weekdays, 2 to 5 p.m. Eastern. On the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome back to the Blaze Radio Network On Demand with Rabbi Daniel Lappin. Hi, everybody. Your rabbi, Rabbi Daniel Lappin, welcome to the show. And uh, we are halfway through the 14th podcast. This is the 14th show that uh, we have up on the Blaze. And uh, we are moving into the fifth segment, segment number five, and we're discussing abolition of objectivity and the implications of that. And it sounds like a big word for something that is really very important, something going on all about us. But uh, first of all, a- an apology for this podcast not coming out time-wise exactly as I'd anticipated. Um, I had thought that I would cover Israel in only two segments, but in fact, it took four segments to cover Israel completely, uh, or at least to the extent that I wanted to on this podcast, and I I did want to build up 
to the entire uh, morality discussion of the concept of reprisals. Um, is it okay to go ahead and kill innocent people to prevent other innocent people from being killed? And uh, the, um, the, the answer is as I covered in, in the last segment. Now, here in Israel, uh, there, there have been many, many ups and many, many downs. Jerusalem itself is an interesting city. If I were to say to you, um, here is a sequence of cities, tell me what comes next. Um, London, Milan, uh, Nagasaki, Oslo, Paris, Quebec City, Rome, Stockholm. What comes next? Now, if you were listening very carefully, you might well have said Tokyo, because you might have noticed that London, Milan, Nagasaki are the letters L. They start with the letters L, M, N of the alphabet, and then after that, we went to Oslo and Paris and Quebec City and Rome and Stockholm. So, yeah, maybe the next one is Tokyo. Uh, and that would have been fine. You, you could have gone with Tokyo for sure. But what is really the interesting thing here? Not that they're alphabetical. That's just me playing with your head. The real thing that's unusual is that um, all of those important major cities are on water. Uh, they're all built on water, and it's very difficult, whether you think of New York or uh, whether, you, whether you think of San Francisco or whether you think of uh, Los Angeles or Portland or Vancouver or Toronto. It is very difficult. Detroit, hard to think of any major city in the world that is not on water. Reason? Well, it's very simple. Uh, the overwhelming majority of major cities grew to major cities because of trade. And trade not only travelled by water, but anybody who has spent any time looking at a modern container port knows that trade still travels by water. Yes, it's true that if you're uh, trading in light, high-value items, like uh, Hermes scarves, how did you like that... Uh, pronunciation of the silent H. Huh? Good, huh? Uh, you, anyone would think I actually know anything about Hermes. But, um, yeah, you know, a scarf that can cost hundreds of dollars and weigh less than an ounce, a, a silk scarf, yeah, that sort of thing trades. Uh, you, you, you carry it by air, of course. But ordinarily, uh, the vast majority of trade used to and still does travel by water. And when trade and goods take uh, when goods arrive and are traded uh, that results in the creation of wealth and uh, that requires and, and causes a city to spring up and so it's, it's no surprise and no wonder that uh, cities all around the world uh, grow up on the water exceptions well when there are land trading routes so the old silk road for instance bringing uh, spices and silks from the far east to the to the um, um, marketplaces of Europe, uh, well, towns grew up along that road. Although it wasn't by water, it was like a river. It was a river of people and trade. The old Silk Road really did carry an enormous amount of trade. And there were cities that, that sprang up uh, on that road. 
but ordinarily it's always on the water. The one conspicuous exception, the one exception is a city that grew up not on the water. In fact, there's no water to be seen. And uh, what's more, did not grow up on any kind of a trade route. That is the city of Jerusalem. No water to be seen. And uh, it's certainly not part of a trade route because if you think about it, Jerusalem is up uh, at a fairly high elevation for this part of the world. It's, it's in the hills. And so any uh, caravan, any route from any points around uh, east of Jerusalem to the Mediterranean would hardly try and reach the Mediterranean by heading up to the hills of Jerusalem and then down again. They'd go around the hills. And so, yes, there were old trading towns on the Mediterranean, Cairo, Alexandria, of course. But uh, in Israel, you got Jaffa, alongside of which the modern city of Tel Aviv was founded more than 100 years ago. Uh, furthermore, you've got Haifa and Akko, an old fortress city from the days of the Crusades in the 13th century. Uh, but these places were reached only by land routes that avoided Jerusalem. There were marketplaces in Beirut, in Lebanon, uh, markets in, in Damascus and in Baghdad, of course. And these were all places that did uh, travel to and from the Mediterranean, but never through Jerusalem. And so the question arises, what, you know, why is Jerusalem anything more than a, a, tiny, a, a tiny village of, of a few ruined homes and houses? Why? Why did Alexander the Great have to conquer Jerusalem? Why did General Allenby at the time of the First World War have to come to Jerusalem? Why did the Ottoman Empire have to come to Jerusalem? Why did the Crusaders come to Jerusalem? Like, who cares about Jerusalem? No trade, no wealth, no water, no money. What's it all about? And uh, Jerusalem really does exist as, um, as an anomaly, if you like, as proof of the Bible, as proof of uh, a religious Judeo-Christian tradition. Because there is absolutely nothing else that Jerusalem has ever had going for it, never been trade. The only call that Jerusalem has exerted on the hearts of human beings has been a spiritual one. It's quite remarkable, but uh, absolutely very much the case. It's, it's really quite something. And uh, if you are in Jerusalem, and uh, I don't know if you've been here yet or um, if not, and by the way, one of the things I'd be interested in hearing from you is whether you would be interested in a Rabbi Daniel Lappin trip um, to Israel. I've never, I've never taken a tour to Israel. People have asked me to do it. I've never done it because I couldn't think or find what my uh, um, specific niche would be. To just go and do something that you know, 50 other people are doing. I mean, there's so many churches that do it, so many synagogues. So many Jewish and Christian organizations arrange tours that uh, I, I don't need to be yet just one more out there. But if I had something unique, and, well, I think I do. And that is the relationship between the Bible and wealth creation. In other words, uh, a, a really good look at how it is that at all times, in all places, Jews have been conspicuously good with money. Uh, is this just a racial thing? Is it an 
intelligence, like what's it all about? And these are topics I've written and spoken on for many years, but it is certainly very noticeable that ordinarily the gross domestic product of a society is a function of its population, all things being equal. And so, for instance, uh, the state of Georgia is eight times the population of the state of Rhode Island. And if you take a look at the gross domestic product, the GDP of Rhode Island, the GDP of, of, uh, of Georgia, you wouldn't be shocked to discover that it was about uh, eight times uh, the size, right? Eight times the people, well, you've got eight times the people being productive and working and creating, so therefore you've got eight times the GDP. Uh, Israel has um, somewhere around about five or six million Jews. The contiguous countries of uh, Egypt, uh, Jordan, um, Syria, and uh, Jordan, Syria, and Lebanon uh, have an aggregate population of about 100 million. So wouldn't you expect the GDP of those countries in aggregate to be about 20 times that of Israel? Well, uh, you know, discounting any oil revenue, which, you know, obviously the population has nothing to do with it, it's just there. But uh, in terms of uh, productivity and creative GDP, the GDP of 100 million surrounding Arabs, just in the countries that touch on Israel's borders, is um, exactly the same as 5 million Jews in the land of Israel. That needs some looking at. What is the uh, mysterious basis of all of that? So that would be the, the kind of trip I'd be looking at. Yes, of course, we'd look at all the, the crucial spiritual sites around the country as well, but, uh, but there would be a tremendous focus on Israel's high-tech business. Um, you can't imagine how much American companies have spent buying either entirely Israeli companies or buying shares of Israeli companies. Uh, there must be a reason, you know, why Microsoft is heavily invested here, Google is heavily invested here, uh, Warren Buffett is heavily invested here. You know, what is all that about? Um, let me get your thoughts on that. Go to my website, and um, that is uh, rabbidaniellappin.com, R-A-B-B-I, and then make sure you get the two L's, right? At the end of Daniel, the beginning of Lappin, rabbidaniellappin.com, and uh, there's a contact us tab there. Go ahead and uh, go ahead and tell me if there's something that would interest you. Just broadly, no commitments or anything. I'm just exploring the possibility of it, really. And also make sure you subscribe to my free weekly email called Thought Tools because that's one of the ways we uh, stay in touch. So do that. And in just a moment, uh, be back with you. Don't go anywhere. More to come from Rabbi Daniel Lappin, revealing how the world really works. On demand on the Blaze Radio Network. America WK with your host, Andrew WK. Always question yourself the most. Then question others. But if people make you question yourself, then we can be thankful for them. Even if they do it in ways that are unpleasant. It's been said before, and I'll say it again. It is the speech that we most disagree with that we have to fight most passionately to protect. America WK, Saturdays, 10 a.m. to noon on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome back to Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Hi, everybody. And uh, this is the 14th, 14th uh, show on the Blaze. And uh, this is um, uh, segment number six, uh, talking about um, uh, the, the, the energies found uh, in Jerusalem. 
Um, it's, it's a city in which uh, one feels the beating pulse so palpably that it's almost, I find it almost difficult to get restful <laughs> sleep here. I'm just on the go all the time. And, uh, and uh, you, you, may, you may even be able to tell that. If I ever sound like a slightly weary rabbi, although I can't say I feel weary at all, the, uh, the, the level of passion and enthusiasm in the streets, the institutions, the people you meet on the very buses uh, is, is really quite remarkable. All of that because of the peculiar nature of a city whose entire existence is testament to the authenticity of the Judeo-Christian biblically-based tradition. And so it was with particular dismay that uh, I visited the Israel Museum and uh, noticed that even Israel has been contaminated by, frankly, and uh, I know at first listen, you are going to dismiss what I'm about to say as the ramblings of a Philistine, as the maniacal murmuring of a rabbi with no cultural sensitivity at all. I know that's what this is going to sound like, but uh, I, can only, I can only ask you to, to bear with me and, uh, and, and let, me, let me make a case, at the end of which I would love to hear whether you think I have succeeded in doing so or not. Uh, the way to do that is go to my website, youneedarabbi.com, and uh, click on the Contact Us tab. And you can certainly let me know. I read everything, and as many of you have discovered, I actually answer personally a number of, of the letters I get. Um, it, it was about 30-something uh, percent I was answering. Um, because of a lot of travel and writing lately, it's probably down to about 20 percent, but one in five ain't terrible. Anyway, why was I struck with such dismay by what I saw at the uh, Jerusalem Israel Museum of Art? Um, it, was, it, was a, it was distress at discovering that even Israel has been contaminated by degenerate drivel masquerading as art. If you want an example of that, there's a picture of it on my Facebook page. Just go to Rabbi Daniel Lappin on Facebook. Rabbi Daniel Lappin on Facebook. And uh, it was published on October the 6th. Um, published on October the 6th. And uh, you'll see it is um, three large limestone blocks. I'd say they look like, you know, big, big stuff, about a foot thick, maybe even a bit more than a foot, maybe 14, 15 inches thick. And I'd say about the size of a standard piece of plywood, like eight by four, eight feet by four feet, something like that. Uh, so uh, these things weigh a lot. So one of them is lying on the other, uh, offset slightly. And the third one, is standing at an angle and it's prevented from falling down by what looks like about a one-inch steel cable that uh, links the standing up block to the lying down vertical block. And I, I stood and looked at this thing and I photographed it for my Facebook page at Rabbi Daniel Lappin and I was dismayed. I was dismayed because... I realized that with some, if you'd have put me in a quarry with some tools and an overhead crane, I 
could have made that peace. Literally. I mean, I, I don't have time to fool around like that, but if you set it up for me, I, I could have carved uh, or, or cut. And there's nothing, I mean, it's not a, we're, please understand, we're not talking about Michelangelo here. We're not talking about a statue of David carved out of a block of marble, uh, as, as you can see in Italy. No, this is three rough limestone blocks, and two of them I held together by a steel cable in tension. I was terribly, terribly dismayed because I had hoped that perhaps Israel and Jerusalem in particular uh, was immune to the craziness of modern art. By the way, this thing is so pretentious. You know what they called it, or the artists called it, extrapolations. And let me tell you something. If, if I can do it, it's not art. Please understand that. If I can do it, it simply is not art. You, you just have to really know that. It isn't. Um, if a child can do it, it's not art. Um, there was a, a case a few years ago. Uh, there's a, a, a woman uh, called Mrs. Linsky who took the splashings of her two-year-old toddler, Freddie. It's true. And uh, she went ahead and she duped the entire world of art. She submitted it to a museum, and, um, and, and they, they bought it, and, and art collectors bid on it, and it eventually sold. But yes, that's exactly what happened. Because in the world of modern art, there is no way to distinguish between what a gorilla would do on a piece of canvas if he had a few open pots of paint or something that's going to sell for $10 million. That's the big problem. As a matter of fact, as a matter of fact, a chimpanzee called Congo actually... Um, they sold three paintings at a, a British auction house called Bonhams. Sold three paintings, <laughs> paintings, I'm sorry, I'm not, don't call it paintings, uh, done by a chimpanzee were sold for 12,000 pounds. Proving the point that you cannot tell the difference between whether a piece of so-called modern art was done by a great artist or whether it was done by a toddler or a chimpanzee. Now, this didn't be, this, this wasn't the way it used to be, my friends, right? It's not that long ago that we could go to art galleries and all you would see are paintings by great artists. You'd see the Rembrandts and the Turners. I'm talking about now uh, the Tate Gallery in London, which is uh, a gallery I used to enjoy to some extent. Uh, landscapes done by Turner, seascapes. There's a lot of wonderful art in British museums of, um, of Royal Navy warships and just a lot of beautiful marine stuff. And I would stand open-mouthed because you could kind of see the sunlight shining through the top of the waves. You know how where the waves are a little thinner and, uh, and, and it sort of turns green, whereas deeper down the wave it's it's blue. It, look, I, you know what I'm talking about. The, the way the foam at the top of the wave would, would be almost luminous. And then the ship, and you could see the sail. I mean, my goodness. Uh, you know, any time. Look, uh, do you remember when Usain Bolt won the 100 meters in the London Olympics? 
I don't know, you'll probably think, you'll probably think uh, this is silly, but I watched the video of him doing that, I don't know, certainly more than 10 times for sure. Uh, I don't know, maybe 15. I watched a lot of times. It was sheer artistry. It was amazing. And I looked at it because I, I kept on thinking to myself, you know, how great are your works, O Lord? Okay, I'm a religious guy. I'm sorry. That's, that's just who I am. I, um, I, I talk to God. Uh, grumble to him sometimes. Thank him most of the time. And, and this time I just said, you know, you're amazing. You, you created this guy. Just look at him go. It's unbelievable. It was, it was poetry. It was beautiful. I love watching people do things that not only couldn't I do, I couldn't even dream of doing. Things that are so rare and unusual and so far from my limited, pathetic abilities that I just love watching that sort of stuff. I don't care if it's uh, fantastic athletes or ice skaters or mountain climbers or uh, people who, who put up great buildings. I, I like looking at this stuff because it, it says to me, human beings are unique. Yes, I know it's possible that crows can use tools. I know we can uh, find examples of crows that will use a stick to move a food tidbit a little closer to them. But no creature other than mankind creates tools to do tasks. To opportunistically use a stick to pull a piece of food near is perfectly understandable. You know, I'm not, I'm not puzzled by why a crow could do that or a beaver could do something similar. But to dream up a tool whose purpose is to make other tools, <laughs> that's right, that will then enable human beings to make things, that is unique to the human being. No zebra has figured out how to do it. No chimpanzee has, has done such a thing. That is one of the ways that I smile and I say, we are not just sophisticated human beings. We are touched by the finger of God. And so when an artist, excuse me, you'll pardon that phrase, uh, kills a shark and dunks it in a tub of formaldehyde, and this work of art, you'll pardon me, sells for millions of dollars. By the way, if you happen to be interested, the artist's name is Damien Hurst. Uh, and that's true. That's exactly what happened then um, you must know something is very wrong. The world of modern art is just a warning sign. It's a barometer of the dangers that face us in a very real sense, not just in a, in a larger scale, our society is doomed and oh, where are we heading? No, in very basic down-to-earth terms, it becomes harder and harder for you to make a living, harder and harder for your children to see a future, and harder and harder for your family to hold together. And all of that is linked to the world of modern art. How? That's why you have a rabbi, right? That's my job. And I'll do it in just a moment. Coming right back. Hold on right there. More to come from Rabbi Daniel Lappin, revealing how the world really works. On demand on the Blaze Radio Network. The Jeff Fisher Show. Buy a car. Get on an airplane, get married, purchase a gun, adopt a pet, apply for a hunting license. 
Apply for a fishing license. Buy a cell phone. Visit a casino. Get a prescription. Buy an M-rated video game. What do all of those have in common? The Jeff Fisher Show. Saturday morning, 6 to 8 Eastern on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome back to Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome back, everybody. The Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, episode 14 we are. This is the 14th show on the Blaze, and uh, this is the seventh segment of, of this particular show. As uh, talking about modern art, and the key thing is that uh, if a child can do it, if a gorilla could do it, if Daniel Lappin could do it, it isn't art. And that's what modern art has become. Um, I don't think there is a better example than the British so-called artist, Damien Hirst, um, who, um, uh, who did the, the piece of um, so-called art. Um, um, it's, it's called, listen to this pretentious title, The Physical Impossibility of Death in the Mind of Someone Living. And what he did is he took a, a big 14-foot shark, immersed it in formaldehyde, and then stuck it in a, um, in a, in a sort of aquarium, <laughs> a big glass case. And um, by now the formaldehyde has caused the, the shark to, uh, to begin to decay, and parts of it are wearing. It's, it looks pretty bad. It looked bad from day one, but um, it looks even worse now. And by the way, that's, that's not at all. That's not at all uh, the only thing that, uh, that he's done of this kind. Um, he's got a piece called A Thousand Years. And again, it's a large aquarium filled with maggots and flies feeding off a rotting cow's head. Yes, they have to keep replacing the cow's head, obviously. And, uh, and this is called art. Now, I'm taking extreme examples because, number one, that's where the money is. We're talking about millions of dollars that collectors and galleries pay um, for, for this kind of, of, of trash. And why, you know, who am I to call it trash? I'm the same guy who can stand in front of the Mona Lisa, Leonardo da Vinci's painting in the Louvre in Paris, and look at it and say, my God, I couldn't do that. I don't even know anybody who could have done that. I'm the guy who can stand in front of Michelangelo's sculptures. And remember, as you stand in front of something that is an amazing representation of a human being, it's, it almost looks like it's going to step down off the column. That's how lifelike it is. And Michelangelo says, oh, it's easy. I knew that David was in the block of marble, I only had to chip away all the parts that weren't part of him. And I say to myself, yes, that's human greatness. But then when I look at uh, maggots eating a rotting cow's head or a, or a shark, or how about a big rock at a museum? There's a museum in Los Angeles that has nothing but a giant rock probably weighs, I don't know, 10 tons, big rock sitting there with a pretentious title. I forget what it's called. Uh, I know that that's not art. I know. 
And um, when I see a, uh, a wall of rusty iron, it's just a bunch of, of iron put up, standing up vertically. I know that that isn't art because these are things I could do and you could do even better than me. Right? There's nothing to it. Art is when there is an objective measure of how good it is. Well, you might say, who are you to decide what the objective measure is? Maybe you're just too much of a Philistine. You're much too much of a cultural illiterate. You simply don't grasp what, uh, what the real objective measure of great art is. And the answer is that that's not how the world really works. See, I can tell the difference between a standard and the abolition of a standard. What do I mean? Well, uh, do you like watching ice skating? Do you like watching the Olympics uh, in ice skating? Well, what would happen if, if somebody jumped onto the ice, slid across the ice on their butt, and got to the other end, stood up, and turned around for a bow to the judges? And then the judges would all confer and put up their uh, little paddles, and they'd come, oh, 9.8 out of 10. What? You'd be aghast. That would be the last time you'd ever watch ice skating. And you say, what's going on here? And the judges say, what a profound expression of the deep feelings of hopelessness and anxiety that infects modern man. What an amazing expression of that subjective feeling churning around in that skater's heart. That's the sort of thing. And you'd say, forget it, I'm gone. And you'd be exactly right. What happens if somebody says to you, who are you to decide what great skating is? That person just did great skating. You're just too dumb to get it. And the answer is, you poor deluded fool. Can't you see that the emperor has no clothes on? And if you're not familiar with that illusion, Go back and read the children's story on which it's based. The emperor has no clothes. Is it a Hans Christian Andersen story? I think it is. It's not a Brothers Grimm. I think it's a Hans Christian Andersen story. The emperor has no clothes. And that's all you said, and it's ridiculous. How about, how about uh, you want to watch a shooting competition? Now, there are amazing things that guys can do with handguns. All right, now, I mean, I shoot. My wife is a crack shot with a three fifty seven Magnum. I have to tell you, any uninvited visitors late at night to the Lappin household are likely to receive a very warm welcome because if I miss, I can promise you Mrs. Lappin won't. But even she would admit that she's not a competition shooter. And, uh, and we enjoy seeing competition shooting. It's terrific when you see people uh, shoot at targets and hit them in rapid succession, seemingly with just an almost uh, invisible hand-eye coordination that doesn't even require sighting. They just do it. And you say to yourself, that's somebody who's really worked at this. They've disciplined themselves and built up their skill at it. I could not do that. And then one day I arrive at the shooting competition and, uh, and I see a 
this person blasts away, doesn't hit a single target, and uh, gets awarded a prize, first prize. And we say, excuse me, hello, everyone else was hitting. This guy didn't hit it. Yeah, maybe, maybe he didn't hit any targets, but his skill in holding the weapon and the way he waved his arms showed how passionately he felt about the sport. Would you ever go to another contest? I wouldn't. But my friends, this is exactly what happens in the world of art. The complete destruction of absolute standards. And they get away with it because they've created an entire religion around it. There's a book written by Tom Wolfe, W-O-L-F-E, Tom Wolfe, uh, called The Painted Word. And uh, it's a book that speaks about this. It's a book that was written a number of years ago, I don't know, 20 years ago, maybe, maybe 30 years ago even. Uh, gosh, I'd be shocked. Maybe it's more now that <laughs> I think of it. But uh, this, this stuff with modern art has been going on already uh, since the 50s and earlier. Uh, it's it's a it's a post World War Two phenomenon, and um, and Tom Wolfe wrote this, and he, he describes that what defines great art today. It's very simple. See, I know what great art is, and so do you. Right? If I happen to be a fan of the Dutch painter Rembrandt, uh, and it's not hard to take a look at his incredible works and see the interplay of light and shadow, and see the character coming across faces. Hey. Look, if, if I were to draw a smiley face, that, uh, you know, I don't mean to sound uh, uh, self-deprecating to the extreme, but honestly, uh, you know, there are things I can do and the things I can't, I can't do. I sailed my family across the uh, Pacific on our sailboat, and I navigated reasonably well. Okay, so I, I can sail, um, you know, not like the greats, but better than average. But I cannot draw. When I try and, and draw a face... It's, it's laughable. Could I learn to be better than I am? Sure I could. If, if I wanted to devote the time to it, of course I could. Uh, but could I become a great artist? Absolutely not. I couldn't. I just don't have it. But uh, I look at a Rembrandt, and I look at the faces, and my goodness, but I can almost read the character of the subjects in that painting. Now that takes some doing. Okay, that isn't easy. And so I know that that is art. But I also know that this absolute drivel, this degenerate drivel masquerading as art, is not art. It is the uh, maudlin outpourings of diseased egos. It's sad, lost human beings making fortunes very often, uh, who think I care about their pathetic little egotistical feelings and then translating that into something that, that you can look at. And then that gets anointed, and this is a point that uh, Tom Wolfe made in The Painted Word, that gets anointed by art galleries and art critics and art collectors. They are the ones now who determine, and then they make the pronouncement. Oh, Damien Hurst is a great artist. And everybody falls into line, and they prostrate themselves and start bowing at the altar of modern art. Where is this leading us? 
I'll tell you, coming right up in a moment. Don't go away. Ancient solutions to modern problems. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin, on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Pure Opelka with Michael Pelka. This week's show, busier than a one-legged man at a butt-kicking contest. We've got a sharpshooter who splits two cards with two bullets, only pulling one trigger. How does that happen? Plus, a Blaze editor experiments on herself. And a guy wonders, what's in the First Amendment? Most people don't know. Don't miss it. Pure Opelka. Saturdays, 8 to 9 a.m. Eastern on the Blaze Radio Network. We now return with Rabbi Daniel Lappin on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome back, everyone. The Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. And this is the final segment of the 14th episode of the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. Thanks so much for being with us. And uh, we're talking about... Uh, helping us all, I want to encourage us all to not buy into lies, myths, and untruths. We must have the courage of our own convictions. We must not be subject to expertitis, uh, which is you know automatically assuming that other people know much more than we do, and when they have decreed something, it's decreed. That's the end of it. And just, I want you to remember that, uh, and, and, and look, this is helpful and, uh, and a useful strategy from your rabbi. That's me, Rabbi Daniel Lappin. I want you to remember that today, people are judged on the basis of their credentials and their contacts. If some university gave them a doctorate degree, we all prostrate ourselves and we think they actually know something. But you must remember that there are certain things today that are so stupid and so unbelievably puerile that only somebody with a doctorate degree could think of them. There are things like that. You've got to remember that today art is on the basis of credentials and contacts. Who gave you the anointing and who are your friends? And so Damien Hurst uh, was befriended very early by uh, individuals like Charles Satchi, um, an advertising billionaire who uh, decided to buy his way into cultured society by becoming an art collector. So he anointed Damien Hurst and began paying obscene sums of money for complete trash. And, um, you know, and, and so we s today we judge people not on character and culture, we don't judge them on what sort of people they are, what sort of character they have, and what their culture is. In other words, what their belief system is and who they really are. No! Character and culture mean nothing. All that counts today are credentials and contacts. Who are the people that like this individual? And if a lot of good people like this individual, oh, then we like him too. And if famous people and celebrities like this person, oh, then we like him as well, then he must be good. And credentials, again... You know, uh, institutions um, play this game where everyone awards each other credentials. Some of them are academic credentials, some of them are awards, some of them are uh, 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 honors, but all of these things are the elite credentialing one another. And so uh, in, in the world of art as well, it's very simple. If a baboon could do it, if a two-year-old could do it, if Rabbi Daniel Lappin could do it, trust me, it ain't art. It really isn't. 
Um, furthermore, if it is, if its whole purpose is just to shock and provoke and uh, and destroy, then it isn't any good. Uh, there was uh, an artist called Serrano who made a piece of art which was a crucifix, a cross, a, a symbol of Christianity immersed in a jar of, you'll pardon me, his own urine. And this, my friends, is art? No. I told you a little while ago, the maudlin outpourings of diseased ego, that's what this is. It's degenerate drivel, and yet it gets anointed as art. And by the way, uh, the, uh, the great heroism of these heroes of society Oh, the museums were only too happy to feature Piss Christ. That's the name of that work of art. They were only too happy to feature the Holy Virgin Mary, uh, a, a degenerate piece of rubbish created by a, a so-called artist called Chris Offili. And um, what that is, by the way, is uh, it's just, I don't know, it's easy to see a picture if you want to, but it's horrible. It's it's big. It's again. It's about the size of a piece of uh, full size piece of plywood, and uh, it's 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 supposed to be uh, the Mother Mary, and it's covered with pornographic images, and um, it's it's got uh, dung animal animal manure glued onto the painting. <laughs> Honestly, this is art. Don't believe it. Don't buy into this stuff. All that's happened is they've destroyed standards. And I try to show you by example that uh, if they destroyed standards in ice skating or in competition pistol shooting, we'd all know, right? Be, it would be obvious right away. Uh, or how about destroying standards in tightrope walking, right? I used to think that uh, a great tightrope walker uh, like uh, Jean-Philippe Petit who walked on a... On a uh, wire between the two World Trade Center buildings years before the Arabs destroyed them, the Muslims destroyed them. Uh, used to think that a great tightrope walker was somebody who could conquer his fear and walk across a lengthy tightrope at a height above ground. No! Take away the standards. A tightrope walker is just somebody who attaches himself to a pulley and, s and rolls across like, like, like some glorified... Uh, Zip line, uh, you know, no, that's not a tightrope walker. Everybody understands there are standards in tightrope walking. There are standards in business. I don't care how you feel about business. I don't care how passionate you are or how disgusted you are, but your business is doing well if you have a bottom line in black, not in red. It's as simple as that, right? Easy to figure that out. That's not hard because there are standards. But there are two areas. There are two areas, my friends, where standards have been utterly abolished, where there is no objectivity. Art is one of them. And um, education, I'm afraid, is yet another. There's a wonderful book by Paul Johnson called Modern Times. And um, it's a story of the 20th century. And it has the most intriguing opening of, of any book. It's, it, it's <laughs> the opening of the book is, The Modern World Began on the 29th of May, 1919, when a photograph of a solar eclipse, and etc. it goes on and on. Basically, what he says in the first couple of pages of the book 
is that uh, Einstein's theory of relativity was all the rage in the early years of the 20th century. And remember, you know, people weren't watching television, they weren't going to movies. Uh, people paid more attention to things that were happening, including in the world of intellect and science. And so people were very aware that Albert Einstein had published a theory he called the general theory of relativity. And Paul Johnson explains how, as a result of that, people began to think more and more that everything in life is relative. They didn't realize that Einstein was talking very specifically about complicated thermodynamics having to do with the speed of light and the uh, relationship between mass and energy. And people said, oh, everything is relative. And I think that that had a lot to do with the beginning of the collapse of standards and the utter abolition of objectivity. And you see it in the world of art, but my friends, more dangerously, you see it in education. And that's why I tell you about this, because this isn't just a theoretical discussion. This is a discussion of me warning you of things that jeopardize your life, things that imperil your children, things that endanger your future. And uh, your children's education today, if you are, if your kids are at a public school or at a public university, they are being subjected to the ravages of, of, of relativity where no standards exist. And let me tell you something you can absolutely rely on, and that is that if, at a, co if a college course or a school course, a high school course, has the word studies after it, there are no standards. Standards have been abolished, and it's a bogus course. Your children's time is being wasted. Please note that nobody says physics studies, chemistry studies, biology studies, mathematics studies. No, it's physics and chemistry and biology and mathematics. But it's gender studies. Because you see, the words mathematics, physics, chemistry, and biology stand on their own. But the word gender doesn't. I mean, I know what gender is, but excuse me, there's a course on gender? I mean, I think I know that there's a man and there's a woman. There's male and female. That's gender. Oh, Rabbi Lappin, you are a primitive, obnoxious, heterodox bigot, binary bigot. You think that your views of sexuality having to do with being two-ness, one man and one woman, oh, that's primitive. That's not how it really is. And so gender studies, bogus. That's racial studies, Hispanic studies. And by the way, how about social studies? You remember there used to be a thing called geography? Didn't speak about geography studies. No, it was geography. You know why? Because people had to know where countries were and what they looked like and what their capitals were. Try that now, would you, on your 13-year-old? I guarantee you that if your grandparents went to a public school in America, at 13, they could tell you a whole lot about geography. Your kid being taught social studies, forget it. Social studies, teachers love it, by the way, because they can never be measured by objective standards. You remember that pistol competition shooter? Very clear to know if he's good or not. Hits the target in a pre-required time, he's good. If he doesn't, he isn't. How do you tell a good teacher today? They're, they have such a great situation. There is no way to measure their effectiveness. <laughs> How can you tell if somebody's a good social studies teacher? There is no way to test social studies. 
because it's social studies. It's all about recycling and it's all about uh, sensitivities. And uh, Take the time to take a look at what your children are being taught in social studies and take a look at the textbook. And you'll be shocked because it's studies. My friends, objectivity has been abolished. Standards have been eliminated. And it's all been replaced with a subjective, touchy-feely kind of uh, ruleless, structureless matrix where um, anything serious, anything disciplined, all of these things are demeaned. They are being exterminated. And our lives are becoming poorer in every single way as a result. I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappin. We're out of time for this 14th episode. That's it. I'm sorry that uh, I, uh, my original concept of exactly what I'd get through on, on the show didn't actually materialize. But uh, work with me, folks. Show me a little love. And in return, I wish you, until we're together again right here next week, a week of good health and prosperity. God bless. The Blaze On Demand. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin.